Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me in an empty capital, however, a rather sunny one. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Christopher Batchelor a director of Walling's Nursery, a company who provides glasshouse and polytunnel facilities in Essex. Christopher, hello. Hello there. Hi. Thank you for coming on the program today. Um, normally, we'd go directly into our conversation on leadership. However, uh, considering uh, the goings-on at the moment, uh, we need to touch on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it has affected uh, your business. Uh, so how has it affected your operations? Well, at the moment, we've been very lucky. We we normally employ about uh, 40 foreign workers from Bulgaria and Romania. <clears throat> and we were able a few weeks ago to see the, what was coming up. So we, we managed to fly most of our staff over ahead of the shutdown. And so we've got everybody on board here now to do the various jobs we need to do, in particular picking the strawberries. The, the only cloud on the horizon, I suppose, is the fact that um, will there be enough people buying strawberries as this spring proceeds? We're, we're hearing that people's buying habits have changed slightly in supermarkets, and well, not perhaps not slightly, quite a lot. And um, you know, are they still going to continue to buy the quantities of uh, fruit that they would have expected in the past? And will they have different priorities? Um, so. That's an unanswered question at the moment, but we're a few weeks away from harvesting, so hopefully things will get back a bit more to normal uh, in the time being. So at the moment, uh, you're operating uh, as normal? Uh, you're continuing the operations? Yeah, operating as normal. Our staff here are self-isolating in a way that they, they, they live on the farm and they don't they only go to the, like everybody else, the supermarket once a week and um, tend not to mix with anybody else. So um, they're, they're much of a sort of enclosed environment, if you like. I'm, I'm travelling myself to work every day. Well, every other day, I should say, not every day. And, my, and one of my colleagues is coming in as well on a regular basis. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty much running as normal. Now, you mentioned uh, the majority of your workers are from Eastern Europe. Is this uh, an arrangement that you plan on continuing after the finalisation of Brexit? Yes. Yeah, we hope that the government have sort of agreed a a, a, a group of um, work permits, visas for foreign workers to do these sort of jobs, which tend to be very temporary. You know, they're sort of, they're only needed for three to six months of the year and then, then they have to go back home or go somewhere else or onto another farm. And uh, so it doesn't tend to suit your average British uh, um, employee, if you like, who looks for something more permanent and long-lasting, um, whereas the foreign workers seem to be happy to mix and match and you know come in and out of work as it suits, as the work's there. Now, have you endeavoured to recruit locally and just not find, found an uptake? Or uh, is it just something that you find the foreign workers to be more reliable uh, in the wish for this sort of employment? Well, to be quite frank, we, we, we did employ a lot of English people 20, 20 25 years ago. Um, <clears throat> and lots of English mums and things like that who could work on the farm 
harvesting during the, the school day and then pick kids up at four o'clock. Mm. But the productivity we achieved once we started to employ a younger foreign people, and it used to be um, university graduate type people. It's changed now. It's, it tends to be just your ordinary run-of-the-mill person, but their productivity is three to four times greater or has been than your average English person, dare I say. So, um, no, we haven't tried to recruit locally lately. Um, it, it's mainly because we, we're comfortable with what we have and the people we have, and they, they do. It, it's it's a it's been a way, I suppose, of keeping the price of fruit down to a, a, a level that it, it, well, it hasn't increased in the last twenty to thirty years. Um, the actual retail price. So we're having to manage the crop with the same sort of with a, with a more expensive labour force, if you like, because the minimum wage is going up. But they have to be more and more productive to keep our heads above water. Now, when it comes to uh, the, the shortcomings in the English workforce, do you think that's something within uh, education or society at large responsible for the lack in productivity? I think it's society at last, at large. I think the, the people we're getting from Eastern Europe um, are hungrier for work, hungrier to achieve and better themselves. They can still earn, in a, in a season here, they can still earn enough money to buy themselves a small home back at, back at home or, or even support their family back at home. I, I think it's a case of um, our state is too sort of well off, if you like. Our general um, standard of living is that much higher in this country for the average person that they, they don't see themselves as having to um, work six, seven days a week, um, sometimes 70 hours a week, and also, you know, the sort of, shall we say, the pressure of being um, pressurised into working at a certain speed, if you like. Um, I, I just don't think it suits our psyche, generally speaking. What do you think could be uh, done to improve the work ethic uh, within those uh, communities that you used to recruit from within England? Um, I suppose um, uh, lack of lack of um, lack of money coming in. If if the benefit system was uh, less generous, perhaps, or um, I don't know. Really, it's a hard one to answer because again, it's everybody's different, of course, and some people. But it, it tends to be that your Eastern European, on average, is is. Well, at least twice as productive and keen to um, keen to impress keen to you know they turn up every morning they're not they very rarely have a sick day but almost none of them have sick days and unfortunately um, in our system and our people in this country tend to think it's a you know a god-given right to have a few days off if they're not feeling very well or you know, take advantage of you, you know, stop work early, perhaps not, you know, you feel you have to be constantly supervising them on their back. These guys that we have here, you can lead them to do a job and walk away and the job will get done in your absence and they won't, um, shall we say, take advantage of the fact that you're not there. How do you resolve conflict within the workplace? Um... Well, we, we try and mediate, we, we, we try and take the, the various protagonists 
um, separately and um, ask them what the, what the problem is. Yes, we do have situations where people don't get on with each other, particularly different nations. Sometimes if you have a preponderance of one nation, they can be a bit overwhelming to the other nation. Um, but we try and, oh, I suppose, our supervisor who speaks all the languages that we have and he's able to mediate with them and tell them that we have, you know, we're here to work and and have have a bit of fun sometimes, but you know, be be uh, responsible and look after each other. So now, I suppose we're, we're we're running our business almost as a a big family, if you like, a sort of, and that's what a lot of farms trying to engender a sort of a family orientated feeling, if you like. Now, if I was to ask you what sort of leaders inspire you, what would you say? Um, I suppose people who lead from the front, really. People who um, not uh, have to get their hands dirty and and uh, show that you know that they're able to to do the same roles themselves, not not be frightened of stepping in and um, being seen to take part. Um, yeah, I suppose it's it's people who are willing to um, do the jobs themselves. Now, unfortunately, Christopher, our time is coming to its close. Before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Wallings Nursery? Well, um, we'll still be here hopefully this time next year. Um, we're, we're just concentrating on producing, um, I suppose, the, the best strawberries we can for our customers and um, try and um, keep the business in a profitable position so we can carry on employing the staff and ourselves and uh, running a successful business. Well, Christopher, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Uh, it was a fantastic opportunity to discuss leadership within a very different context. Um, I do hope that you'll be able to come back on the program at some point in the future. Christopher, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Christopher Batchelor, director of Wallings Nursery. And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who do Google me, realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, 
whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd work with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at... West Ham uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players, and of course they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably. Well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain. Um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was in terms of inspiring confidence I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me I guess would be the captain Bob Moore although he was only uh, about eight months older than me he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier he played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, uh, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction, people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? 
Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alfred Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict but at the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know, in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second, I think... Mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially, 
Um, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great, hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, just had a, look, had a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions, and then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make me laugh. If you, that day. 
if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but have to, but I will. No, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is. People must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with? Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely, that's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this over a period of time, in a short period of time. But if you look at the twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven years that. Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently, since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Green was, yeah, 
straightforward. The answer is straightforward. Answer is yes. Um, That's a good answer. You, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back. Uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at that's that, so many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier, earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially. And that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. It, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the... Um, Getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time, and I wouldn't. And when it, when you put those cat, those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was, and I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. It- we had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. Showed. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind and single mind and dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time it's a huge part of your life but if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a, have a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, 
uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.